Hello, School Psyched Podcast fans. This is Rebecca, and I'm introducing a really cool episode. For the second year in a row, Rachel, Eric, and I had the opportunity to record a podcast crossover with Jeremy Sharp from the Testing Psychologist podcast. We had an in-depth conversation about life as school psychologists after COVID-19. We talked about achievement gaps and guidelines for intervention and assessment during this complicated time. We also talked about teacher mental health and supporting marginalized kids using a trauma-informed approach. We hope you enjoy this special crossover episode, and please feel free to comment and give us feedback on this episode and any School Psych Podcast episode that you have been able to listen to or watch. Please like and subscribe to the School Psych Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Let us know what you think, rate, and react. We'd love to hear from you. We want your feedback, and we really value and appreciate the collaborative conversations. Thank you and enjoy this episode of the School Psych Podcast crossover podcast with the Testing Psychologist. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Testing Psychologist podcast, the podcast where we talk all about the business and practice of psychological and neuropsychological assessment. I'm your host, Dr. Jeremy Sharp, licensed psychologist, group practice owner, and private practice coach. All right, everyone. I am honored to be back again today with the folks from School Psyched, Rachel, Eric, and Rebecca. If you haven't heard of the School Psyched podcast, definitely check that out. It is going to be linked in the show notes, and I also did an episode with them uh, probably close to a year ago, maybe a little more, and uh, had a really good time, and like I said, I just feel lucky to have them back again to talk through the state of school psychology as it stands right now in the fall of 2020. So people are heading back to school or not heading back to school and things are pretty chaotic. So uh, this is a pretty wide ranging conversation. Uh, We talk about how to conceptualize gaps in achievement and, you know, kids falling behind, not just the summer slide, but the COVID slide, so to speak. Uh, as kids return to school, we talk about special ed guidelines and how those may flex or not uh, with intervention and assessment here amidst the pandemic. Uh, we touch on teacher mental health and supporting teachers. Uh, we talk about marginalized kids and who is at risk for falling further behind. And we also uh, touch on Uh, trauma-informed perspective uh, for achievement as the kids return. In addition to a couple thoughts on uh, areas of of assessment and and teaching that might want to uh, take a backseat for a little bit, you know, things that we can maybe uh, do with less of. So, yeah, we talk about a lot of different things and Again, had uh, quite a dynamic conversation, so I'm happy to bring that to you. Uh, Before we get to the conversation, uh, one more shout out for the webinar that I'm going to be co-hosting this Thursday. Uh, It's co-sponsored by Build Great Teams and the Psychologists Association of Alberta. I'm going to be talking about the basics of psychological assessment of kids um, during COVID-19, so remote assessment. And then the second half will be Uh, My co-presenter, Dr. Ryan Macholis, who will talk about how to perform remote assessment, particularly with difficult kids. So uh, you don't want to miss this. And there is the opportunity for CEs. So check that out. Uh, 
And last but not least, uh, if you are interested in a group coaching experience where you can connect with other psychologists who are taking their practices to the next level, my Advanced Practice Mastermind starts in September, and we have a few spots open. So uh, you can get more information at thetestingpsychologist.com slash advanced. And uh, this is a, a fantastic group experience where you know, people really come together, support one another. Um, I provide the facilitation and guidance, of course. And we talk all about things like hiring or hiring again, streamlining your schedule, being more efficient, additional streams of income, and all those issues that come up after you get past the, the initial stage of practice. So check that out if you are interested. I would love to have you. Okay, without further ado, let's get to my conversation with Rachel, Eric, and Rebecca from the School Psyched Podcast. Hey, y'all. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here again. Great to be back. Yeah, things yeah. sure have changed since uh, the last time we were on. The whole world is uh, a lot different right now, so yes. <laughs> but good to be back. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, no kidding. Well, is it you know when when all this started to go down in the spring, um, I immediately thought of y'all, and I was like, I have to reach back out and you know see if see can see if we can have a conversation about all of this as as time goes on because. I don't know. I think there's a lot of overlap between, you know, my world and the private practice world and school psych. And there's, there's a lot out there that we don't know about. So yeah, I'm excited to be talking with y'all and see where we see where we end up in this conversation. So I just want to check in. Um, I mean, generally speaking, what, I know you're each in sort of different settings. Um, and I'm hearing across the country, you know, that, uh, not a lot of people know what is going to happen, you know, with school psych over the next month or so. So I'm curious, just like what is happening in each of your areas and what are you looking at job wise over the next few weeks? Yeah. Um, so, oh, go, go ahead. ahead. You go, Eric. Go for it. Okay. Um, so Rebecca and I are both in Connecticut, but we're both in very different settings. So she can um, chime in with what's going on in, in her, uh, private school uh, world, but the public schools in Connecticut are opening full-time in person. So um, we have about two more weeks, end of August, beginning of September, um, all the schools will be opening um, full-time in person. Some schools, uh, I think most public school districts are offering for parents uh, a virtual option. So if they choose to not send their kids in, there will be virtual learning opportunities as well. Um, But they have to make a decision about that. And then as data rolls in, um, we'll determine whether or not we'll stay open or, you know, respond uh, to outbreaks or um, increased illness uh, accordingly. But we're slated to open um, in person and uh, we're practicing, you know, we, we've had a couple of meetings and we're working on safety protocols, health protocols, and looking at how we're um, spreading out, you know, how many children in a room and how we're going to navigate everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, have they talked with you? Are, are you going to be, you know, testing with PPE and shields and masks and all of that? Yeah, it looks that way. Uh, and I know, I, I'm sure as the conversation unfolds, we'll talk a little bit about 
um, you know, uh, teletesting and, and uh, distance testing uh, versus in-person. Uh, but we will have plexiglass shields, face shields, and, you know, whatever PPE, um, you know, or the district is providing, masks and gloves. Um, obviously, we'll have to put a caveat in the report that, you know, the, that's slightly unstandardized uh, process in administration. But, um uh, there will be safety procedures in place, but we are expected to catch up with our assessments um, as soon as possible as we, we begin the school year. Jeez. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's a whole issue in and of itself, just the scheduling. The scheduling. I mean, we it's been a nightmare in our practice trying to catch up from all the sure. folks that were delayed, you know, those last couple months of last year. But yeah. Rachel, what about you? What's, what are things looking like in your area? Yeah, so I'm in a larger public school um, uh, compared to like Rebecca's in a smaller private school, but um, we are going back completely remote. Now, when everything kind of closed down, there was, of course, a big scramble of, um, you know, taking taking files back with us home. Um, We didn't really know what was happening and uh, what was going on. We kind of had suspicions, but I think most people thought, okay, we'll be back in a week or two or something along those lines. We're anticipating, yeah, the full... um, so that was a little bit of a scramble as far as, you know, people were leaving things in their offices that maybe they should have brought with them. And so that made uh, catching up and doing counseling. And when, once we did get rolling remotely, uh, a little bit challenging. Um, over the summer now, once we kind of stabilized a little bit with um, procedures, my uh, my district is large. And so I think with large districts, it's hard to, to navigate things. Um, but luckily, my department is uh, extraordinarily well organized. So over the summer, we had an opportunity to catch up on some of the assessments that we um, kind of left hanging there. And that involved, they they designated specific schools and specific classrooms that were testing locations for us with schedule with the parent, you know, PPE, we got the face shields, we got the face mask, the gloves, the hand sanitizer. Um, and it's kind of a get in, get out as soon as you can. So you know that that's going to, of course, have an impact on the testing when you're not able to really develop rapport. Um, so it's it's been a learning process, but we've been um, kind of getting through it. A lot of parents have decided, you know, let's wait into the fall. I want to see what the fall looks like instead of kind of rushing into this now. I think that it's going to um, make a lot of school psychologists and districts rethink procedures as far as what is a really necessary assessment. We're not, you know, uh, some of us you know, really enjoy giving tests and, and working with kids. And now it's kind of... Um, you do the, what's required and what you need, and you're not going in and doing um, extra things. But I'm not, yeah, going into this coming school year, I think it's a little bit nerve-wracking. I know that there, the expectations are rising. So before we are kind of in crisis, where you're only seeing, uh, working with the kids that truly need services, that, that truly immediately um, have needs, um, well, well, everybody kind of got their balance. And um, so classroom instruction was... Um, not super long. It was kind of recorded videos for students, posting resources. Now when we're going back, um, they're saying it's going to be like three to four hours a day of synchronous learning in my district. So uh, that's going to be interesting. I have two kids at home. And so I'll have a kindergartner and a second grader. And so they're going to have to be doing their (laughs) their learning on their laptops. Well, my husband's a teacher, so he'll be teaching his four hours a day to his students. And then whatever my duties, I'm not really sure what that's going to look like. So um, it's it's the Wild West. We're kind of making things up as we go along and doing the best that we can, um, figuring out new procedures for things like um, 
you know, self-harm procedures. What do you do when you get a phone call that, that's going on? So we need all new procedures and um, yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> right. Yeah. To say the least. Oh my gosh. Yeah. What are things looking like for you, Rebecca? Well, the, um, we are also um, like the public schools in Connecticut going back fully in person, but the, our, our rules are a little bit different for private schools. So public schools were asked by the state of Connecticut to provide three um, separate plans, one for fully in person, one for fully remote and one for a hybrid model. Um, we had more flexibility because we have smaller numbers and smaller class sizes and more space anyway that we, we were able to do um, the fully in person and the fully remote built into our fully in-person plan is a hybrid model for students that opt out, families that opt out of the in-person instruction. So that was one, we, we have a little bit more flexibility because we're sort of seeing more um, along the lines of uh, many private schools are boarding schools. My school happens to not be, but uh, mm -hmm. we're, we're, we were more under the guidance of like of higher education and, and boarding, private boarding schools. So we are doing the same with PPE, um, distance, physical distance in classrooms, cohorting is a really important part of the model. So the, the delivery of the curriculum is going to look really different, trying to keep um, students and teachers together in cohorts. It won't be like they're going to all their special classes and, you know, traveling um, throughout campus. So it's going to be very, very different. And um, we hope to prioritize um, wellness and uh, mental health. And so I think that's where my role will come in, um, supporting teachers and, and the community parents to do that. But, um, but it's a big ask. <laughs> and uh, ready or not, here we go. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's like, we'll just see what happens. And... <laughs> Just as we go along. Yeah. I mean, is your job going to change? And this is, a, I guess, a question for all of you. Like, are your jobs going to change significantly from last year to this fall? Mine will not, I think. I have a pretty um, full role, like, uh, in terms of um, the practice, NAS practice model. So I think mine will remain largely the same. Just the hours, probably. Just keep going uh, up. <laughs> I'm not really sure what to expect on my end, but I have been uh, kind of pondering um, how can I better figure out students' needs, especially when we've got kids returning. You've, uh, you know, we talk about summer slide and now COVID slide and that um, they've missed out on instruction. I think that's going to play into, you know, is this kid disabled or they just missed out on a lot of instruction. Um, so I've been thinking about ways to figure out where, where students are. Now, I know my district is doing kind of a universal screener to uh, assess skills and figure out where, where people are, but um, I've been looking at CBM, CBA, and things that I can do, um, probes and whatnot, if I were to work with a student for half an hour, say virtually, like what, what type of information could I get with them? You know, doing some oral reading fluency, doing some phonological awareness, uh, informal phonics checklists, um, just to figure out maybe what re what recommendations I could make and, and thinking about those recommendations in terms of a teacher who's working remotely with a student. So I, I'm trying to think a little bit, but I'm sure that it's as it unrolls, it's going to be ever changing. And so I'm not sure that I can fully be prepared. It's just going to be uh, adjusting as things come at me, I think. 
Yeah. And when you say, what is CBA and CBM? So curriculum-based assessment or curriculum-based mm-hmm. measurement. So just looking at those academic skills. So not necessarily doing um, a formal, you know, we have issues with the validity of our formal assessments with doing remote assessment and doing things with PPE and whatnot. Um, uh, that's going to be a concern with any uh, test. But I, I'm wondering if, um, you know, in light of that, doing some informal assessments and working with the kid and figuring out where those strengths and weaknesses are from an instructional standpoint might be uh, as helpful or more helpful even than a standardized battery of something at this point. Mm-hmm. I sure. don't know. <laughs> yeah. Right. And Eric, is your job going to change very much from year to year? I think um, probably similar to Rebecca's, my typical practice model role will will remain, you know, partially doing assessments, partially doing some kind of counseling. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the delivery will look different, um, you know, under PPE and um, small groups of cohorted students. So if I'm taking groups of students, they'll be kids from the same classroom rather than mixing cross classrooms. Um, But probably I think the emphasis, at least for me, initially is going to be on, uh, as Rebecca said, to um, wellness, emotional well-being, social and emotional learning and support. So um, gauging the anxiety levels, perhaps, or, or um, sense of agency that students and teachers have to get back in and, and be able to, um, you know, be a part of the school community without being too stressed out or too nervous. I think there's going to be a little bit of uh, work needed to support teachers and, and um, students with uh, feeling comfortable in the new, in the, the environment as it will have changed. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. I mean, I wonder, have any of your staff, you know, districts or anything, you know, have made any mention of more, yeah, more support for teachers and staff, you know, in terms of like in-services or training or mental health checks or anything like that? That's been a big part of my push at my school is to learn how the adults are feeling. Uh, starting last spring, we did a, um, we did, um, Dr. Sonia Luther had a, has an assessment called the Faculty Resilience Survey. Um, she also has a Student Resilience Survey. So we administered both surveys to our students and to our um, teachers just to find out how they, how they are feeling. And um, built into her survey are sort of actionable actionable um, scales um, for um, well-being. So she looked at, you know, how connected do teachers feel? How clear is the information that they're getting from their administrators? How, um, how much, you know, how much are they experience, experiencing burnout, um, emotional burnout and stress? So she differentiated between those two. And so we were able to sort by grade level, by, um, you know, all kinds of different variables to, to really know how the adults were feeling. And for me, that really has been a priority, even going back into the school year to provide them with um, support from um, the, our wellness team. We have a, a, a division called the wellness team and with resources and ability to, to, you know, sort of have open sessions of, um, pop in and tell us what's on your mind and what are you working on and how can we, you know, provide any kind of support or reflection because we know that if the adults aren't well, the kids aren't going to do that well either. So um, it's been a priority for us for sure. Thanks. 
That's good to hear. I mean, that's, I guess, a little bit outside what y'all might typically do, but uh, I mean, it, you know, it makes sense. You're already there. You're psychologists, right? So <laughs> can support teachers. Yeah, and I, I think, think that that's a little bit of a different role too, that as far as the public versus private. Um, we've had situations in my district where teachers have needed, you know, kind of um, help with mental health and whatnot. Um, we've been specifically told, you're, don't touch that. You're not, mm. you know, that is not your role. You need to immediately refer and kind of distance yourself. Um, but I, I totally agree with everything Rebecca's saying, that if the teachers aren't comfortable, if they're anxious, if they're nervous, like that is that is going to absolutely impact things. And I myself, I was a bit relieved when I heard that we were going to be completely virtual for at least the first semester because it is, it is nerve wracking. It is, uh, you know, you watch the news and I know our kids watch the news and um, it's something to be taken seriously. And so there's perfectly normal to have anxiety about it. Yeah. Yeah. I know in our district um, they have, it's almost like their own um, proprietary insurance plan or EAP that the teachers can use. Um, that provides, I think a little bit easier access to services um, and um, that's been, yeah, it's been really helpful for the teachers around here. I imagine we're going to see a big uptick, uptick in referrals through that. So, that uh, makes sense. Yeah. Oh, I was just thinking, um, you know, s- similarly, in this circumstance, especially, you know, we are all, um, you know, as adults, we're considered the first responders in the education s- system, you know, the mental health pr- practitioners, but also the teachers. Um, but we're also sort of victims here too, right? You know, we will all be and have been touched by this virus and by the pandemic and by closures and um, lack of social connection, the losses that that um, impacts, regardless of whether we have been personally impacted, we are, uh, you know, with somebody, you know, perhaps personally passing away in our immediate circle, um, we're affected and impacted. And I think, in that respect, um, really taking sort of the emotional temperature of the the climate and culture of the the building and the school community is really important, um, and doing a lot to um, making effort to really support that climate and culture as we get back in will be crucial because um, we're we're all going to go in on pins and needles, so to speak, and um, you know with various levels of discomfort and and stress and. Um, needing those those supports and connections, and you know, you you said something really uh, appropriate, Jeremy, or, or just really poignant. I think, um, uh, you know, are, is anyone measuring how teachers are feeling? You know, and and I think really, you know, we have this little adage: what gets measured gets managed, right? So, mm-hmm. if we if we neglect that aspect of what we're measuring as we go back in, um, we we might leave our key players sort of in the lurch, you know, the teachers and the adults. Right. So that, right. that's really crucial. Well, it makes me think too. And I, I wonder if I could ask y'all if you have thought more about your own self care, you know, uh, and what that might look like as you go back. Um, and I don't know if you can even anticipate needs, you know, in that, in that regard, but yeah. Have you, if any, if you're willing to talk about that, have you thought about that at all or kind of, try to anticipate every single day we think (laughs) (laughs) it's been such an unusual summer for school psychologists because many of us are are um you know 
fully focused on return to school and re-entry planning and whether that's a part of our official role, like for, for me it is, um, but for some people they're not, they may not even have a seat at that table yet they have to think about it because um, only, only we know what ethical practice under these circumstances can look like. So, um, but at the same time, like Eric said, we're parents and we're human beings and we're, we're in this storm with everyone else. So we've been, um, but this is one of our avenues of professional self-care. So we've been doing extra podcasting and having these conversations and talking to professors and researchers and just other practitioners to find out um, what other people are doing and trying to crowdsource as much um, inspiration and, and help as possible. And there have been so many great um, ideas out, shared out there. And um, we'll definitely share with you a couple that we think are, are really helpful around these topics. Like um, Sonia Luther, I mentioned, Authentic Connections is a great um, um, organization that is looking to support schools with collecting data on mental health and wellness. So there's one, but Castle has this really comprehensive SEL roadmap for um, school reentry, and it has. It's just it would take all summer to get through it, which is what I've been trying to do is just really <laughs> explore it because there's so many other links too. There, there's, there's lesson plans and there's the trauma-informed toolkits and there's, it's really amazing. And uh, along those lines, um, uh, SAMHSA, the, their trauma-informed um, schools uh, toolkit is also really comprehensive. So I think as we're um, gleaning, um, you know, w- w- ideas from experts out there and what what how can we best serve our students and our community our school um we have to balance that with how 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 are we breathing you know how's our oxygen level and um i'm I'm doing a lot of that myself i'm trying to make sure i have time for just the basic sleep is always really important for me and exercise and time with my kids and making sure that they're okay Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah i'm amazed at uh, what my average nightly sleep amount has done over this. It's just like skyrocketed, which I, you know, I feel very like thankful that it can do that, but it's like, yeah, I I don't know where all the sleep came from, but apparently it's needed. Rachel, you had some thoughts, huh? Yeah. So Rebecca mentioned that we've been doing kind of extra podcasts and we have, and that's been super helpful to hear from professionals. We had, you know, uh, come on Dr. Farmer and Lockwood talk about, they've written a paper on remote assessment. And so I feel more prepared having done that. Another thing that we've done is uh, kind of a podcast, but we've been doing Facebook live discussions, um, especially when things initially hit. And it was kind of like almost a roll call, roll call for, for school psychologists. Hey, everybody watching, what state are you in? And are you in school? Or are you out of school? Like, well, what are, what are your directives right now? Where do you stand? And so it's been really comforting to be able to log on to Facebook and have these live conversations and then see the chat bar kind of going along the side, hearing from all these other school psychologists in different states. And seeing that we're all in the same kind of predicament and fumbling around, and that's made mm. me feel a little bit better. That um, you know, I, I like to feel confident in my job, like I know what I'm doing and I'm helpful. And so when all this happened, I started feeling very incompetent. Like, how do I help? How do I do? What 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 do I? What goes on? And so it was just helpful for me to realize that we're all in the same boat. Sure, sure. Eric, did you want to? 
Yeah. So, you, you so that self-care piece, um, I think during this time, um, you know, I would say at least for myself, um, my, my typical emotional ebb and flow has been a little more intense maybe a little more highs, a little more lows, a little more, uh, frequent, um, mm-hmm. rather than maybe more spaced out and more even. And so, um, finding avenues to, you know, to support things that we need are, are so important. And, um, you know, we think about resilience, you know, some of those, those pieces that help us build resilience are connectedness and self-care and sleep and adequate nutrition and, and all those things that, um, perhaps we neglect or perhaps we don't always pay attention to until we can't find toilet paper and we, you know, we can't uh, see our friends and our colleagues in person and um, we're stuck at home or, you know, our gym is closed and all of those things that perhaps we, you know, were, were much easier to come by. And, and so I think we really have to make extra effort to do those things that we need um, you know, and, and find avenues, just a little bit of time each day to help ourselves unwind, to help ourselves, um, you know, whether it's exercise or reading a novel or chatting with your best friend or, you know, that sort of thing, just find um, some time to do that or time with your family. And, and, you know, as ironic as it is, even though we're all stuck at home, um, it, it's easy for people to be doing their own thing. You know, we, we've all been at work um, this school year and, and into the summer on our screen. So um, for me, just touching base with my kids, even though they're off in another section of the house or, uh, you know, making sure when I'm off my screen, I'm, you know, doing something meaningful with them or, or mm-hmm. getting out to exercise or it's just important to keep those routines and that consistency. Yeah. 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 I couldn't agree more. I mean, I feel there's all that push, at least in a certain area, you know, the population or, you know, media outlets or whatever to like develop new hobbies and, you know, new habits and take care of yourself and whatever. And I'm just like, go for the low hanging fruit, you know, like pick what works and has worked for a long time and maybe just do a little more of that, you know, instead of like adding whatever you think you should add. So Let's see. I um wanted to. I mean, I appreciate y'all diving into the the personal component. I'm, I imagine a lot of school psychs out there are wrestling with this, right? And like, how am I going to navigate all this and still stay, still stay sane? Um, but I wanted to. You know, we mentioned a little bit ago this whole idea of like what's going to happen to kids in the fall, and then what assessment and services are going to look like, and so. I am really curious what y'all are hearing and reading and seeing about, you know, are there going to be gaps in achievement and what do we do with that? Um, yeah. If we could open that, that can of worms, I'd love to do that. I guess I could start. Um, they're definitely going to be, um, there's going to be a lot of variability uh, with our students coming back. It, it depends so much on, um, lots of personal variables, uh, you know, what their family situation was like when they were home and um, what their, how, how their health was impacted and um, what their vulnerabilities were before, like what, were they anxious before this uh, pandemic situation? And, um, and then also I think um, we can look to research 
Um, it's not exactly the same, but we can look at research that, that's um, on summer slide and um, post other kinds of natural disasters like hurricanes when kids missed a lot of school or, you know, absenteeism and how that affects school. It's, it's really not very much the same, but if we do, if we try to extrapolate some of the, that, we, we can be pretty confident that um, there's going to be a lot of variability, but kids are going to be behind. Um, but, but when I say that, it like, it makes me uncomfortable because I think behind from where, you know, they're, they're going to be where everybody, they're going to be sort of in the same boat. So I feel like we want to encourage our adults, parents, and teachers to just breathe deeply and mm -hmm. know that we are going to find out where are their skills. And yes, they may not have retained all of the academic skills that they had before schools, um, before buildings closed, but we're going to find out what, where they are in terms of skill level. And we're going to get them where they need to be. We're going to get them moving in the right direction. So I feel really positive about that because there's no one that's not in that situation. I do feel most um, worried for vulnerable kids that have had, that will be coming back to us with some varying levels of trauma. Um, I worry about them. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. I've heard, you know, folks are saying a lot like, well, yeah, kids are going to fall behind, but again, like what are we comparing that to? And this is kind of a unique event, I guess, and that it's a nationwide shut down it's not just geographic where you know certain kids are missing out but it's kind of like the whole country is falling behind so then you know then and this is my gap i guess in knowledge is like how does that kind of play into standardized testing and uh, you know just assessment i suppose like when it's a national level like delay um do you all know anything about that or um what the impact might be I think that's another yeah big kind of question mark. I know um, I had an intern and um, this past year, and I think she, she emailed me and said, do you, "Do you think that the testing companies will renorm?" Or, and I've just kind of had to like laugh that off. Like I don't think it's that simple. That okay, we'll just renorm. We'll just um, you know adjust this this way. You know, it's um, I, I think it's going to be just using what we have and um, making those cautionary statements that this is. Mm -hmm. We don't really know, <laughs> um, you know, and I look at, so I've got a four-year-old and a seven-year-old and I'm the school psychologist and my husband is an elementary school teacher. And so when we shut down, I, I worry for them. You know, I knew that they were going to get what they needed academically um, in my house. You know, we, we were both working from home at the time. We carved out a schedule. We were able to see to their needs and we knew what the standards were and what needs to be taught and what, what's important to work on. Um, so my, I have no worries for my own children. And I think that they're going to look far more prepared going back to school than, than most kids. And I, yeah, I worry for the kids that, um, that are going to be most impacted for this parents and households that don't have, didn't have the internet connection or the, the technology to engage in the remote instruction or don't have parents, you know, have parents that have to go out of the house to work. I was lucky that I could stay home and work remotely. You know, if you have to, to go out and leave, then who's going to sit there and work with your kid on, on their math? I mean, that's it. So it's just really going to highlight the, those gaps. I, I don't know. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that's one thing, you know, you said, Rebecca, that trauma piece, and it's just so, I mean, it's obviously happening, right? And 
I guess the question is like how to wrap your your mind around that and um, I, I don't even know I don't even know what the question is here but just kind of observing right that like that's a, a huge issue that we're gonna have to wrestle with um, as kids go back it's like trying to figure out like who is maybe you know more traumatized quote unquote than than others I don't know if anybody is thinking about that or trying to plan for that or, or how y'all are conceptualizing that whole dynamic. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, I'm hoping that, you know, a, a couple of things. Our commissioner of education in, in Connecticut is pushing uh, for strong social and emotional learning components across the state mm-hmm. and to really build our level of capacity to support kids emotionally um, for all educators. Um, So to that end, we do have um, some financial support available in Connecticut. Mm -hmm. And my district is responding with rolling out some additional training and additional social and emotional um, supports and time. um, So that all teachers can have uh, a built in time to do some social and emotional learning and, um, and really try to provide a little more support for kids at that level. Um, so hopefully we'll be more proactive than reactive in that respect and, um, building trauma sensitive schools and, and schools that are, um, you know, welcoming and, and supportive and gracious and patient. And I think, um, those cultures are where kids thrive and where teachers thrive and where, um, teachers are retained because they want to work there, you know, and, um, and so I think, you know, I'm proud of my district because I, I do believe that we are working hard to, um, to achieve that and to support our students at that level. That's great. But are there guidelines? Working. Oh, it is working. Yeah. yeah. I, I was just going to ask, I mean, are there specific guidelines out there around what, what constitutes a trauma sensitive school and does that actually change behavior or interventions or policies in that building? Um, I, 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 there are uh, not state guidelines, but Rebecca, I think, uh, you know, I'm not going to put you on the spot, but I think Rebecca has a really good handle on this because this is something she's uh, been very interested in. Um, but there are um, some distinctions between trauma sensitive and trauma informed. And um, as Rebecca mentioned, SAMHSA and um, Castle have some really good information. I don't know if you want to jump in here, Rebecca. Sure. And um, before I do, I want to kind of make a plug for people that really want to take a deep, deep dive into um, this particular topic. My friend Karen Baruch Feldman is going to do a presentation with a colleague for the New York Association of School Psychologists. Um, it's a, it'll be a live webinar August 21st and 24th, but it will be recorded if you register through the NIASP website. And it's called Resilience Upon Reentry: Building a Trauma-Sensitive School in Our New World. So I've been talking with her a lot about, um, about her presentation and about what this means for all of us. Um, and I think that, you know, a trauma-informed school requires a lot of training. And, you know, I think that there are some great examples like the Boston Public Schools and, uh, but uh, many of us are just not there yet. And so if we think about how do we support teachers with trauma in sensitive um, understandings so that they um, get a sense that 
you know, like Ross Green says, kids will do well if they can. And so if they're, if they're not, if they're behaving in a way that is, um, you know, that is kind of flagging them for they're, they're not moving forward academically or they're, you know, they're communicating, what is their behavior saying to us that they're communicating that they're having a hard time. And again, they're having a hard time, not they're giving us a hard time. That kind of shift in uh, perspective is a really good start. And so, um, and then again, um, the um, SAMHSA has a great uh, kind of, um, visual too for uh, guiding principles of a trauma-informed approach and and they are safety trustworthy and transparency peer support collaboration and mutuality empowerment voice and choice cultural historical and gender issues so um, you know there's so much there that we can help help uh, our teachers um, as as we get referrals and as teachers are asking us you know how do I reach this child remotely, you know, we can, we can use our understanding and all of these resources to collaborate with teachers and help our schools all be just more sensitive to these kids have gone through a lot, you know, and even if they're, you know, their health and safety is, um, is well, I mean, that's, of course, the most important thing. But um, but this is a lot. This has been a lot emotionally for them. And I recently shared on, on Facebook this great webinar on uh, looking at um, at children's responses to natural disasters, so, so huge hurricanes. And um, the presenter, and I can share the link to that, but the presenter said right after when school reopened, 45% of the student population met, uh, had symptoms of post-traumatic stress. But when you looked nine to 10 months later, that's when you really saw kids who were still struggling that really needed support and intervention and kids that were becoming, you know, okay, that were resilient over all of that, that they had been through. So I think that we're still like in the hurricane and everyone's experiencing some levels of stress of, you know, uncertainty, anxiety, all of those things. And we want to keep an eye on uh, looking at um, all, all of our kids to make sure that they, they have, you know, one adult that they can count on, that they, you know, that they're, they're safe in their homes, that they're all, all of these things, um, the, the factors for resilience. If we look for them now and try to measure how kids are doing now, then nine months from now, we'll really be able to identify the kids that need um, a lot more intervention and support. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's such a good point. That just makes me think too, that um, we just need to buckle up, right? I mean, this is not, it's not like we're going to go back to school and in a couple of months and, you know, a few extra counseling sessions, things are going to be fine. And this is more, I'm just, I'm kind of talking to myself because I have, you know, a seven and eight year old and, you know, this is like a 12 month to maybe 18 month process here. We just got to, like I said, buckle up and be there and ride it out. Gosh. Yeah. I like that term. I, you know, just buckle up and, and I think for schools, if we focus more on that, resilience um and and positive climate and we're going to ease back into you know the academics are important but if we look at maslow's hierarchy you know our safety is first and then our emotional security and our our emotional needs and um and i I think um there was an article i want to say new york times 
um, just recently five reasons um, to ease slowly in um, from COVID-19 to schools, something like that. Um, I can share the link, but I just read it this morning and uh, it just basically spoke about um, not pushing the academics that in looking at, you know, our responses to hurricanes, earthquakes, wildfires, um, getting kids back into school, socially connected, safe, um, and then easing back into the academics um, seems to be the the response that's um, appropriate that um, gets their little minds ready, you know, and gets their little hearts and brains and souls ready to, you know, to get back in. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's such a good point. That's also got me thinking about, you know, the kids that we're going to be testing over the coming months, right? And how that might impact our feedback sessions and what we focus on with parents, right? It's sort of like there's a, there is a good enough. Um, and, you know, maybe focusing more heavily on the, you know, the emotional well being than, you know, those low reading scores or whatever it might be, you know. It's, it's a hard balance. Um, we have a man, Dr. Amanda Vander Hayden is coming on the podcast. I want to say next, next week. I'm not sure when this episode will be released, but she's coming on shortly. And her passion is specifically in math instruction and evidence-based, uh, evidence-based math instruction, um, but evidence-based instruction across the board. And so she feels very strongly that, you know, we, I, I totally understand and agree that the social and emotional side of things needs to be attended to. Um, but she also is uh, worried that we're going to lose traction with the academics and the impacts of that down the line. Um, and it, I, I'm more familiar with the literacy side of things, but we know that you know being literate and and getting student getting children reading has such an impact on on their course of their life and, and how they're able to access things and attain educational achievement and to, to make a life for themselves. And um, sometimes, so it's just so important to to be following the science and the evidence base, and being, I guess, mindful of our time. We don't want to waste time on ineffective practices. You know, we want to be using kind of. We've got to get our A game. Um, I think going into it, um, sometimes in schools, um, you know, there's there's differences in curriculums and quality of curriculums, and so now now's the time to really look at what works what doesn't work and um, to dive into that when we're ready. I, I totally agree though that um, if we're not social emotionally there, you're not going to be able to absorb these things, but we need to kind of um, shed ineffective practices when we can and, and move forward um, as scientifically and, uh, as we can. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense. Is there, when you, when you say all of that, is there anything like top of mind that you're thinking about that might, uh, be more easily shed throughout, you know, over the next few months, um, inefficiencies or what, uh, you know, that you've seen. So I am, and Rebecca and Eric know exactly what I'm going to say, but I'm a big proponent <laughs> of kind of the science of reading movement. Um, we see a lot of reading curriculums, for example, that I don't know if I can mention it here. Is that, is that okay if I mention like, some of the bad ones? <laughs> You're safe here. You can say whatever you want right um, like Fontes and Pinnell is used in my district and it's kind of a whole language based approach. You know, you, you don't understand what that word is. Okay. Look at the context of the sentence and look at the picture and try and guess, try and figure out what that word is. So that's kind of a methodology based on whole language 
reading that back in the day, we thought that that maybe was how we learned to read. Now we know through scientific research that we read through um, that that simple sound correspondence, phonemes connected to graphemes, you know, letters connected to sounds. And you need to teach students how to decode in order for them to become efficient readers. And then they don't have to decode anymore because it, it gets stored in their memory. So when we're, uh, we're diverting students away from, okay, look at the picture. You don't have to look at the word or look at the first sound of the word, take a guess based on the context or read the next sentence. Maybe you can figure out what that word is. You're not, you know, when we're not using like a phonics approach, explicit instruction, things like that, um, research has shown time and time again that we, we know what's efficient and what's effective instruction. And yet we have a lot of schools, my included, that uh, don't, don't do that. And so if I could, yeah, get rid of that whole, whole language approach, um, whole word reading approach, you know, memorize these flashcards of sight words. Um, I would get rid of that and say, let's let's go through a systematic, explicit kind of uh, process there. But that's just my little soapbox. <laughs> I don't think you're alone in that. That's, you know, I was kind of scared. I didn't know what you were going to say, but this is, <laughs> that's totally, I'm right with you. I'm right with you. Yeah. I did want to, I wanted to circle back though. You know, we kind of started to touch on this idea of, um, uh, you know, certain kids sort of falling behind more than others. And then, you know, Rachel, you mentioned this idea of COVID privilege, you know, in our, in our chat here. Um, I wonder if we could dive into that a little bit more and, you know, what y'all know about which groups of kids might be more vulnerable right now and who we might really need to be looking out for. Definitely. Uh, I, I think, you know, there are so many factors impacting kids during this pandemic, but you know, the, the ones that really are striking are, are, are impoverished kids. Um, you know, some of our kids in inner cities are some are minoritized uh, families and kids, um, people who don't have access, are families with low socioeconomic status, you know, just off the, the start. Um, and some districts have responded, you know, my district, I think, was, was really good. We went one-on-one with devices, so every child had a Chromebook. Um, and we set up internet um, connections throughout the city. So we set up mobile um, internet uh, wow. connections. So, mm-hmm. so that at least the issue of opportunity was as minimized as possible, um, access and opportunity. Um, that doesn't mean that kids necessarily had a quiet room to study and be online. It doesn't mean that, you know, perhaps there were other issues um, in, in those homes that might have been impacting. doesn't mean... Um, you know, everything was equal, but we did make an effort to try to make at least access, um, uh, you know, take care of that. But, and also food insecurity. So we, we gave out meals. Um, we continued with our lunch and breakfast program. Um, and that's continued throughout the summer. So some of those things, but I do think of those kids and my district is a title one school district. And, and so we do have a lot of families who have the, that impact of poverty, uh, that trauma, traumatic impact of poverty. Um, and so I think about those students in particular uh, impacted by um, not having the material needs to um, weather the storm as well as some other kids. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, Rachel mentioned, you know, um, she and her husband were both educators. Um, I'm in a similar boat. Um, my wife is a clinician and, and was able to do telehealth. Um, so we're able to be home with our kids, you know, and, and, 
um, I think those issues can impact some of these families. Thinking about, you know, if uh, parents are in the healthcare uh, world or the service industry and had to go back and certainly be at risk themselves. And um, but so many factors, I think, impact kids, and, and those then eventually trickle down to um, uh, academics as well, right? And so we have. Um, you know, as you mentioned, the, the COVID slide, right? Um, so, uh, you know, wondering how many of our kids uh, will have retained anything. Um, some kids engaged really well and some didn't. Um, and I know we, some districts really reached out and some students and families were available and, and there were connections and with some it was, it was more difficult. And I think probably in those cases, some of those families were just trying to cope too. And that maybe jumping back into school was a lot or trying to help their kids navigate school was a lot. Um, so I, I think when we get back, we're really going to have to find, um, you know, a balance for where, where we are, sort of a baseline, you know, mm-hmm. where everybody is um, and how we're going to navigate levels of um, support and intervention. And we do, you know, in schools, we, we have these three tiers. It's sort of our go-to uh, multi-tiered systems and, and usually mm-hmm. tier Tier one is universal, tier two is a little more um, explicit, and tier three is sort of individualized. Uh, and so we're going to have to find ways to um, provide interventions, I think, across the board for kids, you know, prior to special education or determining whether special education is, is needed as well. We still have to navigate the, you know, um, the law of, you know, um, IDEA and trying to figure out how that fits into this as well. Um, but yeah, Rachel just mentioning in the chat, racial injustices, you know, really coming to the highlight, you know, I don't know if you want to jump in with that, Rachel. Yeah, I, I think that everyone, uh, I mean, if, with everything that's going on in the news, I don't think that this is anything new with, with George Floyd and how that's come kind of to the forefront of things. It's obviously nothing new in this country there we're shining a little bit of a spotlight on it now and i hope that we continue to shine a spotlight on it and and make changes just because um systemically this is a problem and and the inequality um issue in education and and in life and everything around i mean it's just so important i think to keep in mind and that this is going to harm um those students who are um you know in in the greatest need the most, I think, so. Yeah, such a good point that, I mean, it seems like all those factors that we typically think of with, um, you know, kids falling behind are just amplified now through everything, you know, that we're, that we're going through. And so I wonder, you know, have, has there been any talk, I mean, in any of your districts or schools about sort of targeted strategies or ways to like truly identify those kids um, and, and bolster, you know, their learning a bit more or um, I mean, anything in that realm. I think the plan is on my district end is this universal screener to figure Mm -hmm. out just to kind of dip our toes in the water and figure out where where we are and where the greatest need is. I think that that's kind of the first step. But I'm in a district that, because they're kind of large, school psychologists aren't necessarily always consulted on all the kind of big overarching decisions. 
So I'm a little bit out of the loop. I imagine that Rebecca um, is way more involved in kind of the reentry plan of her district and, and in the in the loop and consulted on these types of things. I don't know if you might be listening to that. Sure, yeah. In terms of cat, uh, knowing where kids are academically, we, we are going to do similar things, just, you know, screen everyone, find out where kids are when they get back to school, but not as a first step because um, more we want to make sure that the kids that didn't retain because they just, they couldn't access the remote learning for whatever reason, for, because for so many reasons, we want to make sure we can identify those kids because they're, they're already more vulnerable kids that um, last year when we did the student resilience survey, we looked at um, self-report scores of, of kids sixth grade through ninth grade. How distracted do you feel during um, remote um, learning, during distance learning? And um, do you have uh, an adult that when you have questions with your schoolwork, do, who, is there an adult that you can ask? And, you know, looking for all of these different variables because kids that say I was highly distracted, I had nobody, I felt lonely and isolated. Those are the kids that are going to be the most behind because they're telling us that I didn't do well. This was not a good situation for me academically and also emotionally. So um, I think that we want to try to identify kids that didn't have access to the distance learning. Um, also, our kids that really require a lot of individualized academic support or specialized academic intervention anyway, our kids with IEPs, how were those services delivered? How successful was that? And let's ask our teachers, you know, from last year, because those kids are going to be more behind too. And um, maybe they did have access just, but they, they need a, a, an educator, you know, and they may not have had two parents who were able to even, um, you know, address their academic needs last spring. So lots of things that we're going to have to survey and ask and, um, and continue to check on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you mentioned IDEA a couple of times here in our conversation and this is a little bit of a left turn, but I am really curious. Is there, are there any guidelines now around IDEA and I mean, even timelines for assessment and delivery of intervention with all these variables going on? Like, do we know anything about what that's going to look like? Especially, you know, with kids being remote, obviously, but also just a completely backed up schedule for testing and service delivery? Yeah, I think when, when we started, when we initially shut down in, in March, um, the guidance that we got was that everything was sort of paused. Um, so we weren't circumventing IDEA, we were sort of pausing. And, uh, and because we were in a crisis, we were going to service deliver as possible. And, um, and uh, time frames were not necessarily avoided. They were just sort of on hold. So, um, so we ended up having IEP meetings. We, you know, sort of let parents know if, if we absolutely need to, we will, but here's what we can offer. We have to have everybody safe. We have to do these over the phone or video. Um, and so we had some IEP meetings, but most parents, triennials, you know, all services continued as possible and as available. And so, um, 
as we roll into the school year, all IEPs are um, continuing, right? And so our charge will be to, you know, let's say we missed an annual review or we missed a triennial evaluation or something. Um, those will all be scheduled as soon as possible. Um, I think we have a time frame we have to get all of that done before October 1st, um, which seems pretty lofty to me. But as, as my um, supervisors have said, we're going to do our best and uh, we'll make it happen. And so I, I think, you know, for assessment wise, um, you know, if kids have been in the, the buildings, um, if teachers know them, you know, we're going to try to be able to sort of jump right back in and, and within a few weeks um, get a sense for behavior observations. Um, it obviously will look different than it did with um, smaller classrooms and and these cohorts that are six feet apart and masks on and all that stuff. Um, I, I think the biggest thing, you know, when we have kids who have a very clear disabilities that, um, you know, that are, are, have been already diagnosed and we already have a sense for the impact, those are much easier for us to, you know, to look at, you know, how well have they done? What kinds of services should continue? We have sort of a baseline and a continual measurement over maybe a couple of years. I think probably the, the trickier ones are going to be the learning disabilities, right? You know, um, the, the gray area kids who are struggling to learn, but we weren't quite sure how, and, and that's going to be the, the tough, um, tough area to assess, I think, the, the biggest, because certainly instruction was impacted. You know, there's, there's no um, question on that. Um, but, you know, my district is doing um, MTSS, multi-tiered systems of support. So we have these blocks of time where intervention is, is um, supposed to happen. Um, and hopefully we'll get a quick baseline and can jump in providing, you know, intensive interventions as needed and try to um, just support kids and and um, move them along, and and hopefully we'll see in a short period of time whether those interventions are um, supportive and appropriate. I, I guess it's going to be a tough call. I think you know it, it won't be black and white in in many cases, but I think we do our best to um, you know to assess, not just test. I, I think you know sometimes. In, in some fields, I think in the clinical field as well, we consider a, a good thorough assessment um, really what, what we do, a, a good part of what we do, not just throwing tests at a kid, but really assessing where their skills are, where their needs are, good social history, you know, um, so really thorough global assessment. Um, and that to me is the difference between testing and, and really evaluating a child, right? And so we'll gather more information than just standardized test data. You know, we'll get history and observations and we'll sort of get it all back together, I guess. It's just, just going to take time, I think. It's going to look different. Yeah. Every, like you said, just doing our best. Everybody is just doing their best. Goodness. I um I know that our time is flying, but I did want to check in just on um, the whole idea of remote assessment. I mean, it sounds like, you know, two of you are going back in person, but, you know, are you, what's, what's that look like, you know, around the, the country and school sites you're talking to in districts? I mean, what's the general, what's the view on remote assessment and what will it be in the school setting? I think that um, most school psychologists are rightfully very cautious about this. Um, we know that there's concerns with validity. We know that, you know, 
they weren't necessarily normed for this. We know that there's logistical issues as far as um, the technology to do it and having the quiet environment. I've also talked to school psychologists who have concerns that uh, parents help a little bit too much, even in the testing process, that, you know, <laughs> they might be kind of prompting them or give they are correcting it. How did you get that one wrong? Like, you know, that are sitting right there kind of listening. So I think that everybody's um, a little bit nervous. I mean, at the very least, we'll be cautioning things and explaining that, I think, in the evaluations. That this is potentially not a good representation of uh, what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the the alternative of suiting up, uh, like as, if you're going to talk a remote assessment versus, you know, the PPE and going in, are you getting a good feel for the child skill in that type of scenario as well? And so that's why I'm trying to, I'm, I'm looking at, I'm only doing the standardized cognitive stuff if that's really necessary for decision making and that I really need that that information. But um, if it comes to, because I do have some anxiety too about, and I would, uh, about getting, you know, spreading germs and bringing uh, that maybe home to my own family. And I would feel terrible if, you know, I was sick and I got a child sick or the child's family sick. So if it comes down to personally, you know, the remote assessment that we don't know if that's valid or not, or suiting up and doing the PPE and, and risking health, I am personally kind of tending toward the, the remote assessment. Um, I know my district is looking at the RIAS right now. This hmm. is that might meet our needs. There, nothing is ideal. It's not going to be the perfect scenario. It's not what we did in practice in grad school when you know we have professors making sure that we're we're putting the blocks out correctly and, and all that. It, it's not. So I think we just have to gather, like Eric said, as much information as we can to kind of make the best decisions that we can with the information that we have. I kind of wish that we could temporary IEP, you know, okay, we recognize this child's struggling. We don't know if it's because of COVID related factors or not. We do feel like an IEP would be in their best interest. Let's give them an IEP right now and we will reassess once we're back to business as normal and kind of tease that apart. I I have concerns of course for what what quality of service we're going to be providing remotely or in the PPE world anyways. Um, are we doing interventions to fidelity? So um, I'm not sure is that that's the answer either, but of course, you know, I'm not in charge. I don't know what the federal government's going to say about IEPs and disabilities and, and testing and all that. So, um, yeah, if it were up to me, I think that I'm leaning towards, honestly, being more in favor of the remote assessment, but understanding mm. that it's not ideal and it's not perfect and we need to be aware of the limitations of the test that we're giving. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. Rebecca or Eric, did either of y'all want to add anything to that or on the flip side, what you're finding about testing with PPE and how to navigate that, if that's impacting well, I, I did want to add that we had Dr. Um, Drs. Farmer and Lockwood on our podcast to talk about uh, teleassessment. It was a really good episode and they did share, I think it was Dr. Wright's research on um, teleassessment practices, but, but mentioned that in that research, the practitioner, the clinician, and the child uh, was, in, I think, an adult in that situation. But the the um, both people were in the same building. Uh, they were just in different rooms, and so that is a model that we can consider because it does increase, you know, our safety and reduce the spread of germs, probably better than PPE. Um, and and you know, there is a little bit of that research. Probably not with children, I think, as Dr. Farmer said, but but at least then maybe 
we're closer to where we want to be in terms of um, can we really um, count on these results for anything at all. So I just wanted to mention that that model. Yeah, yeah. I'm a big fan of that. You know, that we call it the hybrid model, but yeah, where it's we're in the same office suite, but just in different offices. Yeah. It's been tough. I mean, I've done a few of these presentations over the summer around like teleassessment and how to navigate it. And it's a really hard presentation to give because there's not very much research at all. You know, I mean, there's, I think, one study with kids in the U.S. that actually gives a comprehensive battery and it's not even really published yet. So it's been tough. I've enjoyed um, uh, checking out uh, the comments on your Facebook group of people kind of posting pictures too of their setup for testing. And so you see the the shields and I saw one that somebody had uh, kind of, yeah, through a, a plexiglass in, in a doorway. So you're kind of sitting and, but the door was plexi. It was really interesting. Um, and I wish that in the schools we had more flexibility to do with something like that if we so chose but oftentimes we're kind of running between offices um sometimes we're testing in whatever room we can find and i know that too there's restrictions um from the standpoint of we have a union here and um when we're doing the testing over the summer it was interesting to me to learn that you know we could bring a kid and test them in the designated room but we were not allowed to sanitize afterwards and bring a second child in um with um, the union that we weren't allowed to be doing the cleaning, the custodians had to do the cleaning. And then the custodian contract had something along the lines, they're only allowed to clean a space one time a day. So what it ended up being is you can use a room and test, and then later in the day, the custodial staff come in and clean, but that room was off limits for the rest of the time. So there's all sorts of these kind of logistical issues in schools that you don't maybe always realize are at play behind the scenes that make it a little bit more cumbersome than you might expect. Right, right. Well, and that's why, yeah, I was I love having y'all on that you can speak to these little nuances that, you know, that's how would we know about these things unless you actually dig into it? Yeah. Well, I want to be respectful of y'all's time and I feel like we've covered a lot of ground in our conversation. It's been great. Um, can you talk a little bit about who's coming up on your podcast? You always have fantastic guests and I love listening to it. So yeah, let people know who who's coming up here in the next few weeks or months. Um, so I know I, I talked briefly about Dr. Vander Hayden and her kind of episode is related to how to hit the ground running, how to get the most um, when we get back to school, what, what we need to put in place and how we're ready. Um, I know that then going into the fall, um, it looks like Dr. Reynolds is going to come on again. We've yeah. had him before and he's just great to chat with and kind of shoot the breeze with because he I mean, he's, has his hands in so many different things and has so much experience that we like just having a conversation with him um you guys I like know our grandfather of school psychology to us. yeah yeah that's great <laughs> I'm that's trying great. to think I think positive psychology is another topic we've got coming up what else do you guys remember off the top of your head um social and emotional learning we have and some, we have some a, uh, a college um a college uh, LD advisory is her Facebook page. So I'm not sure her official title, but she supports our kids when they go off to college. And um, so that'll be a really uh, interesting topic. We have so, we have a lot, we have so many, we have more guests than spots. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. That's a good problem. A good it problem. is. Yeah. 
But like I said, I always love checking out what y'all are up to and who you're talking to. And um, we'll make sure to link in the show notes again, just so people can jump on and find it. But, but yeah, thanks again, y'all. Um, it was great to connect with you again. And uh, good luck, you know, as, as the year gets started. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Always great to connect with you too. So we appreciate this. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Thanks again, y'all, for listening to my conversation with the fantastic hosts of the School Psych Podcast, Rachel, Eric, and Rebecca. Uh, like I said, yeah, we covered a lot of ground in that conversation. And um, the hope, you know, this is less of an instructional podcast uh, so much as just diving in and really seeing where things are at in the school psych world. And uh, the hope is that, that y'all will take some good info away and um, if nothing else, just get some validation that things are a little wild everywhere and we're all just doing the best that we can. Like I said at the beginning, if you are interested in the advanced practice mastermind, taking your practice to the next level as an advanced practice owner, would love to have you in the mastermind group that is starting in September. You can get more information at thetestingpsychologist.com slash advanced. And if you want to learn more about remote assessment with, particularly with challenging kids, check out the webinar that I am co-hosting this Thursday with Dr. Ryan Macholis. And uh, you can find the link in the show notes. There is CE credit available, and I think it'll be great. I'm really excited to hear Ryan's part of the presentation, and I think it'll be very helpful. Uh, As always, there are plenty of links in the show notes. From our conversation today, um, including uh, many things that I have never stumbled on. So uh, big thanks to the School Psyched folks for, uh, for bringing those things up. And there are links to all of those if you want to check them out. Okay, everyone. Hope you are doing well and hanging in there. I'll be back with you on Thursday with another businessy episode. Take care. Until then. The information contained in this podcast and on the Testing Psychologist website are intended for informational and educational purposes only. Nothing in this podcast or on the website is intended to be a substitute for professional psychological, psychiatric, or medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Please note that no doctor-patient relationship is formed here, and similarly, no supervisory or consultative relationship is formed between the host or guests of this podcast and listeners of this podcast. If you need the qualified advice of any mental health practitioner or medical provider, please seek one in your area. Similarly, if you need supervision on clinical matters, please find a supervisor with an expertise that fits your needs.